In the brand new book, Dear By Men, author, peer counselor, and creator of the hashtag Bisexual Men Speak, J.R. Youssef offers an unapologetic guide for readers who are Black, Mask, and Bi. The book features cutting social analysis, personal stories, and reclaims bi-plus visibility in a culture of erasure. It also offers practical feedback on how to unlearn internalized biphobia and homophobia, fight back against erasure and stigma, navigate sex, dating, partnerships, marriage, friendship, and much more. It's available now wherever books are sold. North Atlantic Books is offering listeners 25% off plus free shipping. Purchase Dear By Men at www.northatlanticbooks.com and use code CURIOUS25 at checkout for 25% off and free shipping. U.S. mailing address required. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money. Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous, like two bedroom suite instead of a one bedroom suite? So you're like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room. So you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your, your guys's room. Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I am so freaking excited because we are joined again by Meredith Broussard for part two of our conversation about artificial intelligence. If you have not had a chance to listen to part one, I'd recommend revisiting it. It's just the one literally before this. We talk AI basics, chat GPT, and that fucker Francis Galton. Today, we're going more in-depth on algorithmic bias and what the future holds for artificial intelligence. Let's get into that part of the story. Here's part two of our conversation where we are asking, how smart is AI? Part two. So in our gender episode of Getting Curious on Netflix, we did a sketch that riffed on a computer not being able to break free of the gender binary. Is our world, even though I already know that this is true, but just in case you need a literal NYU professor to explain it, is our tech really hardwired for a gender binary and cisgender norms? 100% yes. The reason for this is that our tech reflects basically 1950s ideas about gender because that's when computers were made Our systems like NYU core university systems, like our student management systems, were developed in the 60s, right? And so they have these really retro ideas about gender. So NYU has done a really good job 
of updating its computer systems so that now our students can have a range of gender options. And also our students get identified to professors, librarians, and what have you using their preferred name not necessarily their legal name. Uh, And this was an extremely expensive and time-consuming change that only happened in the past couple of years because people recognized, oh, wait, like we should not be dead naming our students in these systems. We should not be forcing students to identify as one of only two genders because gender is a spectrum. People use different pronouns. Like People change their names. And it's really important for our computational systems to reflect the reality as opposed to forcing our students to fit into some narrow 1950s concept of gender. I would love to ask you if that's okay. Like, how do you experience tech systems that don't have a, a representation of you, like in the dropdown? Would that be okay? Sure. But I do, before we do that, That's the thing that blows my mind about like these bills in like Arkansas, Oklahoma, even Texas, these like anti-trans laws and the one in Tennessee that's been proposed. It's like being called the anti-drag law, but it's really the anti-trans law because it like it, it criminalizes anyone who dresses in clothes that are not of their assigned sex and can be seen in public because like it's written so vague that like anyone can be criminalized, much less like a performer. Yeah, it's terrible. But that's the point. It's that these legislators are trying to legislate like against reality. Like the reality is, is that trans people have existed forever. The reality is, is that young trans people do exist. Like they're not being groomed. They do exist. Like young trans people have been existing, like, you know, kids, adults, everything in between, like we exist in you can legislate against it all you want, but you're just legislating against a reality. The reality is, is that we do exist at all ages. People learn that they are trans at different ages. That is true. Obviously, like society has, you know, a say in how someone has their gender expression because obviously we all exist within our society and how people treat you is going to have an effect on, more or less of an effect on individuals. So, you know, that goes without saying. Now, to answer your earlier question, Because I'm non-binary, I feel like some of these affect me less than our trans siblings. Because when I think about the cost, like the financial and emotional toll of changing your, you know, identification cards, dealing with schools, dealing with higher education, dealing with healthcare, all of those things are made infinitely harder by being trans versus non-binary, I would say. I do think it is harder. That being said, these are some of the ways that I have experienced like algorithmic bias from my gender identity. So because I have long hair, because I wear tights, because I wear a lot of like long like t-shirts that cover me, like when I go through an airport, like without fail, if I ever go through a scanner, like I'm always stopped for a hand pat down. Those things Mm. cannot tell, like if there is something in my bun, they can't tell my privates. They think that I am a woman. They think because I have long hair, because I'm wearing like dresses. So I'm always stopped. I'm always, and frequently I will be taken into like a separate room, like away because I have been flagged as like either being suspicious or being like maybe hiding something in my hair or in my tights or in my ankle or in my fucking private parts. That has happened to me. It's dehumanizing. Yeah, tons of times because I don't fit into like the outline of what the thing reads is going to be a man or whatever. So there's that. Another one, this is more of a funny one, but there was that TikTok filter recently of like, 
talking to your younger self. And because I had like long hair and a beard, it didn't know who I was. So it was, it gave me like lipstick and kept the beard underneath my like neck. But then it obviously did not look like me as a teenager. Like as a teenager, I had short hair. I looked like a cis teenager, you know? So just being able to speak to your younger self when you're trans or non-binary is a different thing. And there is no, like, I just looked at it and I was like, what's it going to say I looked like as a teenager? And you just, I couldn't help but laugh because it was just so funny. And then another one that more pisses me off and frequently pisses me off, but again, champagne problems is like, if I go into a store, like a high fashion store, and I want to buy a bag at Chanel, or I want to buy a bag at wherever I want to buy one of my like pretty bags from, without fail, I have never not been to an Hermes, a Chanel, a Fendi, none of those high fashion places, not one that has like non-binary as an identification marker. You can't put it like you cannot put that in your client profile. So every time I go to impulse buy a fucking expensive purse that makes my inner child happy, I'm always left a little bit like having to like confront my capitalistic bitch ass because I'm like, these people won't even fucking honor your gender expression. And here I am. And you know, I got to grapple with that shit because these fuckers can't even be bothered to put in a non-binary thing on their fucking thing. So those are just three quick ways. Not that I'm upset yeah. about any of them. I just kidding. Yeah, you should be upset. Like I'm upset for you. I started thinking about this originally because when I was a kid and I started having to fill out forms, you know, the form would ask for race. And well, I'm a black woman, but my background is multiracial. And so I would get upset that like there wasn't a box for me to tick. And one of the things that's really important as a, as a writer is to, you know, not only think about your own experience. I mean, I write a lot about race and technology, but also to think about the experience of people who are not like you. And so I started thinking about, all right, well, what is it like to not have a box for your gender identity? And I was like, oh, that feels just as shitty as it does to not have a box for your racial identity. And my God, like the number of times that you get confronted with like your identity being erased inside technological systems. Like it's, it's maddening. So I write a little bit in the book about the airport scanners. Sasha Costanza Chalk, whose book Design Justice is one I would definitely recommend. And Sasha writes about the airport scanners. So those things have a freaking button. Okay. Like a lot of them have a button. The TSA agent will press the pink or blue button. Like when you walk through and that's how they determine what they scan for, which is obviously incredibly hostile to trans people. That makes sense why I get stopped all the time. Yeah. So it's like, I should really just be wearing like jeans and a sweatshirt. Like don't ever wear what I would actually wear to an airport. Cause like you can guarantee you're going to get stopped. So in our previous conversations, we've talked about biases against darker skin and AI. In your new book, you discuss this again in reference to medical racism so how is medical racism influenced or reinforced by tech? So all of the things we've talked about already in terms of all the bad stuff about humanity being embedded in our AI systems, this comes up again when we're talking about the technology of medicine. There is a really common misconception out there that Black people have greater muscle mass and this is a this is a racist notion. It comes from uh, fetishization of black male strength in the slavery era. And interestingly, 
this racist notion gets embedded in something like a measurement of kidney function, right? So bear with me for a second. I'm going to talk about formulas. When your kidney function declines, it gets measured by something called an eGFR, an estimated glomerular filtration rate. And when your eGFR gets down to 20, that's when you are eligible for the kidney transplant list. And then you kind of hang out on the list and you wait for a new kidney. Well, the way that your eGFR gets calculated up until very, very recently, up until the last couple of years, was based on race, right? Mm -hmm. So because Black people were thought to have greater muscle mass, they had an extra multiplier thrown into the eGFR formula so that Black people with kidney disease qualified for the transplant list later than white people, right? And so when you develop an algorithm that evaluates somebody's eligibility for the kidney transplant list, you have this racist notion embedded in the actual technology that is calculating whether somebody gets a life-saving organ. I mean, that is medical racism. And just to drive the point home, but it's already pretty fucking clear, but like, as we said before, with like chat GPT, it's like you're putting in parameters to feed this computer to determine the statistics and the probable outcomes of the question that you're asking. So if the algorithm is, does this person need a kidney transplant, but it's using 60 plus years or 70 plus years of information in medical textbooks and in medical things that have been, you know, literally just taken from old texts and put into this algorithm, like no one is is uh, programming and say like, leave out the 50 years of the multiplier that said that black people had higher muscle mass. And unless it is audited and explicitly programmed out, which my understanding is that it is not, it is a continued problem. Even if they don't explicitly run it through like a non-race-based thing now, like in the last few years, it's like that part has been air quote, like corrected, but it still has information that wasn't corrected or like fixed. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And you see this in all kinds of calculations. There was a quote unquote race correction in calculating which football players were eligible for the NFL payout for concussions. Right. So uh, Dorothy Roberts has written about this and uh, black players were considered to have uh, lower mental capacity. And so they were calculated to get lower payouts from the NFL's concussion fund uh, than the white players. Or we have things like pulse oximeters, which uh, came to prominence during the pandemic because people realized that, oh wait, pulse oximeters work well on lighter skin and they don't work well on darker skin. Uh, another thing that I write about in the book is an AI-based tool that Google put out within the past couple of years that claimed to identify skin conditions and you know, the idea was, oh, yeah, we could eventually like use a tool like this to diagnose skin cancer. Well, guess what? It only worked really well in light skin. It didn't work well on dark skin. So all of the horrible stuff in human history is embedded in our technological systems, which is why we just shouldn't be techno chauvinist. We shouldn't have total faith in these systems. And also like with the dermatology, when I was thinking like, if you would have had a derm and an engineer to be there to be like, hey, if we run this on other skin tones, like how well does it work on other skin tones? It's like when there wasn't enough cooks in the kitchen, 
in the making of the thing, you know? Like if the technology is there to work for some people, then there is technology that would make it work for everyone. And if there's not, then fucking put a lid in it until it does work for everyone. Yeah, until and unless it works for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, but then we can also look at medical textbooks, right? Like what? look at the illustrations in medical textbooks. Well, these are mostly people with light skin. Like what is the training data for AI in medicine? Well, it's mostly, you know, it's mostly white people. Well, who has better access to healthcare? Like we know that access to healthcare is race and class-based. If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year. But even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast hosted by Sam Goldman names it, dissects it, and connects in-depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wujahat Ali, Dahlia Lithwek, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. Hey, it's Jonathan Van Ness. Americans United for Separation of Church and State defends your freedom to live as yourself and believe as you choose, so long as you don't harm others. Core freedoms like abortion rights, marriage equality, public education, and even American democracy itself rest upon the wall of separation between church and state. Christian nationalists are attacking these freedoms, seeking to force us all to live by their narrow beliefs. Americans United is fighting back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. So Dorothy Roberts, you mentioned her earlier. She's so brilliant. She's brilliant. And she did she did the work on like the NFL thing. Was she able to like take them to fucking task? Like was she able to like tell them what the fuck and they fixed it or no? It is my understanding that the NFL thing has been resolved. I should say one more thing about the kidney thing. Please. So this EGFR correction was the standard in medicine for a very long time. And so patients, advocates spoke up about the inequality embedded in this calculation, and they did manage to get it changed in the past couple of years, which is great and is absolutely a cause for celebration and like a triumph for algorithmic justice. What we do need to do now, though, is we need to go in and audit all of the lab systems, like every single lab everywhere in the world that used this calculation needs to have its software and processes updated. And we also need to go into every kidney transplant list and like rearrange people because you know, black and brown people have been pushed to the end of the list. And so, you know, they probably need to be higher up on the list. I have another question on that too, because like, I mean, another place that jumped into my mind when you were telling me about racism and the kidney thing is that like black women have like, isn't it like three times more likely to die in childbirth in the U.S.? And just even with like pain and like just how like the medical field treats like black women's pain, like it's like childbirth, but also like just pain in general versus their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. Like, is that just like 
good old fashioned interpersonal racism? Or is that also reinforced from like algorithmic bias too? Like, does that kidney bias like work its way into like, it must, doesn't it? I will say that researching medical racism was one of the hardest things that I did in writing the book because the history goes so deep and because it's just so pervasive. A couple of books that were really uh, good resources for me as I was researching, uh, there's a new book by Linda Villarosa called Under the Skin, which is about the history of medical racism. And there's a book by my friend Dolan Perkins Valdez called Take My Hand, which is fiction. It's historical fiction. And it's about some girls who were uh, forcibly sterilized in the South back in the day, because this was another thing that happened to Black girls. You know, there were these eugenicist ideas that said, oh, well, we should just sterilize them so that they don't have babies. I mean, which is horrific. Like, can you imagine being like 12 or 15 and like having your your reproductive organs like forcibly removed from you and like you have no idea what's going on? And the girls who were the subject of the book, like they were developmentally disabled, like they didn't, really didn't know what was going on. Like it's just, it's it's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. Ugh. Not only was that material really hard to research and to reckon with, just personally, but then like the big idea is, okay, all of this bad stuff gets embedded in these algorithmic systems because people are just uncritically making these medical technology systems built on top of the racist medical systems. And so we really need to unpack the racism underneath in order to build better technological systems. And until we do that, like our technological systems are not going to be fantastic. They're not going to be inclusive. Like they're not going to be as effective as people claim. There needs to be like a racial social justice awakening in tech, like not a moment, but like a whole awakening that is yeah. persistent. And I hope it starts with more than a glitch. Well, I mean, I think you have been, you have been and continue to be the amount of times that someone has talked to me about your work, like not in my podcast. Like I hear about you in circles doing things that like they didn't what? know that like, no, your work is like you are, you are. Oh my God, that's this. amazing. Thank you. You are doing the fucking goddamn thing. So where else does AI fail us when it comes to our bodies? Like say with like cancer detection and if you're comfortable like to share with us, like what has your experiences been? Well, I can tell you my cancer story because... At the beginning of the pandemic, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I had a total mastectomy and then the entire world shut down. So not only was I dealing with the pandemic, but like I was recovering from like freaking cancer surgery. Uh, it was terrible. And, you know, people, people often react to cancer diagnoses in unexpected ways. Uh, I got even more myself, which is to say I started making spreadsheets and I started <laughs> researching obsessively. And during the pandemic, uh, instead of just chilling out and recovering and, you know, uh, figuring out life after cancer, I decided it was going to be a really good idea to research the frontiers in AI-based cancer diagnosis. So what I did, uh, and I should say I'm fine now, 
Yes. Go get your mammogram. Early detection is key. I am so grateful to all of my doctors. They were completely amazing. I got great medical care. I'm just, I'm so, so grateful. But I also did this weird thing where I took my own mammograms. I ran them through an open source cancer detection AI in order to write in the book about the state-of-the-art in AI-based cancer detection. I did this because I was reading my chart one day. You know how you can like get into your electronic medical record and you can like read all the like, you know, all the little bits. So I saw this note that said, your scan has been read by an AI. I was like, oh, wait, what, what's that all about? What did the AI think about my scans? Like I was really fascinated. And so it sent me down this rabbit hole of, well, what's going on with that? Uh, So I have a whole chapter in the book about uh, what is the state of the art in AI-based cancer detection? What did the AI see when it looked at the insides of my boobs? And what is the future of AI-based cancer detection? It works really well in certain situations, was my finding. And then it doesn't work in other situations. And so it's not really ready for prime time. People like to talk about it as if, oh yeah, radiology, like that's a profession that's going to be replaced like, you know, next year. But it's kind of like self-driving cars. The promise is more exciting than the actual reality of it. So did it misdiagnose yours or did it not quite get it right? Or like... So... One of the things I realized was that I was completely wrong about my concept of what the AI would do. Like, I thought that I was going to take my entire electronic medical record and all of my scans and I was going to feed it in. And then the AI would like look at all of the data and all of the pictures and like, I, I don't know, give me like an, you know, animated doctor that would like tell me, you know, you have cancer. Like, I, I don't know what I thought, but like, I, I definitely expected a lot. The way it actually works is totally different. You take a single picture, like a single view, and you feed it in. The computer has been fed with, you know, thousands, millions of other views of breasts. And those breasts have been labeled. Like there's been a red box drawn around the cancerous part in that single view. And so what the AI will output is it will draw a red box around an area of concern on your Mm. skin. That's it. So did it predict your area of concern, right? It did. So impressive, right? But it's like a little bit more like, like, yeah, like not as comprehensive. Like it wasn't going to be like your treatment is this and do that. And like, it's more here and it's like probably this type and it's going to grow slower fast. Like it was pretty much just like, this is the spot that the doctor should check. So like a little bit more basic at the moment. Yeah. And it also was the case that when you are confronted with something like cancer, you want a doctor, you want nurses, like you need people. Like the idea that you would just like walk up to a machine and like feed in your mammogram and it would put a red box around something and then just like not tell you, okay, this is what we think it is. Like, this is your prognosis. Like when you get diagnosed with cancer, you need somebody to tell you, listen, you are going to die, but not today and not from this. Like Mm. that's, that's a helpful thing to say. I mean, if you're me, that's a helpful thing to say. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's hard for for somebody else. But so you need 
medical professionals to help you through this incredibly traumatic experience. And, you know, not just with cancer, with any kind of major diagnosis. I don't think we really want just a computer telling you, oh yeah, you probably have a problem. Yeah. I mean, of course. Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb. And then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but we love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You ever own something that inspired you to up your game? We spend so much time in our cars. It's nice to have a car that makes you feel good. It's giving me like, you deserve to take care of yourself, girl. Honey, I just love Alexis because it's giving luxury. It just gives like, nice. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And the features on this GX, honey? Available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Ooh! Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. That's wide! Available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I think I also wanted to just quickly flag that, like, when we were talking about audits, like, even when people within the tech industry, we have seen that when they do flag an issue, like, in an internal audit or, like, do raise, like, concerns, especially when it is, like, Black women engineers or, like, even like people of color within the tech industry, they are often met with like scorn and like disbelief. And we saw that in that one, that nice lady from Google. And then what was her name? Timnit Gabriel? Yes. 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 Like, yes. So it's like, even when there are whistleblowers, sometimes it's like the powers that be like really seek to silence them because there was just a lot at play here with like stock prices. Like when things get out, like it's just, everyone's always worried about like the worst thing. And then when someone's like, hey, wait, we need to like fix this one thing. It's like, it's not even fixed. And then it's like actually made worse because no one was dealing with what the whistleblower said. So how has recent layoffs in the tech sector, we've been hearing about that a lot. Like how has that set back DEI efforts? I think that when you are laying off a lot of people, you are generally undermining your DEI efforts. The tech industry has, uh, has not done a fantastic job of making itself more diverse over time. Uh, they have talked about it a lot. Um, they have made a lot of promises, but we haven't seen the needle move. We have seen the needle move in academia. So like in data science programs, for example, we have much better uh, gender balance than we used to. 
you know, we have like women in engineering programs. In the past couple of years, we've seen uh, some major funding efforts going into uh, data science and computer science at HBCUs. I think the tech industry needs to do better. Like I'm not, I'm not really willing to say, yay, tech industry yet, because like they just haven't done enough. Like when they do, I will be the first one to say bravo, but like we're not there yet. Until then, we are not getting a, you pass this course from a Professor Meredith Broussard, honey. So you're gonna have to work a little bit harder. So I would say this, I had at least a Tesla because Bobby used to have one. And I was like, oh my God, these are cute. I feel like I'm stuck in an iPhone. But then Elon Musk started saying all that crazy shit about trans people and pronouns. And he started talking a bunch of like weird conservative shit. So I fucking revoked that lease, turned that fucker in so fast. I got like a different goddamn electric car. So fuck that guy. He's a dick. And that's the only way I knew how to hurt him, honey. I was like, I'm gonna hurt that bottom line more than I'm gonna hurt him on Twitter. So I'm just gonna bye. As I took it away from there. But I did think in one weird sense, he kind of did us a favor because we could see when he took over Twitter how much the owner of a company can change the parameters, the goals, the objectives of said place. And I really can't think of a time when a company of that size has changed hands in such a public way. And we've all been able to kind of see that. Like, it really is like, a before and after. And I think that's kind of interesting. So what do you make of that? I mean, this, it, it, like just the whole, the, the fuck? I think from an algorithmic bias perspective, one of the greatest losses at Twitter was Twitter's meta team, which, you know, sounds confusing because meta is Facebook. And then there was a meta team at Twitter. But anyway, meta was the algorithmic accountability and algorithmic auditing team. It was run by Ruman Chowdhury. It had some really amazing thinkers. They had people who were really thoughtful about issues of algorithmic bias. They were doing things like they ran this bug bounty, this algorithmic bug bounty, where the idea was they would give you one of the many, many Twitter algorithms and teams would look at it and try and find algorithmic bias problems. And then they would get a bounty, a reward for finding the problems. I mean, what a great idea, right? Algorithmic Justice League, Dr. Joy Bolomini's organization has published a big report about using algorithmic bug bounties. Uh, I think this is a really promising option for finding problems inside algorithms. Okay, actually, I, I had another question about that and you maybe just answered it. But when you are auditing, like, do you use the platform and then take the data from using the platform? Or to do a true audit, do you have to go into the coding of the platform itself? Like, is it from a data of like interacting with the outside of the platform or do you actually have to go like inside? Would you have to have like access into the admin of Twitter, access into the admin of IG to do a true audit? Or do you just interact with the app from like a gajillion different accounts? All right. So I'm going to try and restrain myself from like getting all nerdy and excited. I'm going to like take deep breath and not like start talking about code or start talking too much about code. Cause this is a really good question. And like, I could talk for like an hour about this. Uh, So you can do an internal or an external audit. Journalists generally do external audits because as journalists, we don't usually have access to the internal systems. Uh, But uh, people inside a company can do internal audits. 
And so both are valid methods. Uh, one of the things that I worked with Kathy O'Neill's firm, Orca, on is developing an algorithmic auditing platform where the idea is you'd be able to hook it up to any algorithm and uh, kind of figure out what's going on inside it. Right now, algorithmic auditing is kind of a bespoke process. It's not an automated process. And people, uh, people often do want to audit Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Google, which I totally get. Those are the platforms that are most familiar to us, but those are the most sophisticated algorithms. And it's actually really, really hard. So like Google, for example, every time you do a Google search, there's something like 250 different machine learning models that get activated. So you're actually auditing like 250 things simultaneously. Like, I don't know about you, my brain can't like hold that in. I couldn't even do one. Yeah. So (laughs) it's, it's a lot easier to audit something that's smaller, like say an algorithm that is used to grade student essays. Like remember when there was a writing section of the SAT, there was a move to try and have computers read the essays that students wrote and grade them, which PS I think is a terrible idea. Uh, So if you are starting out with auditing, you want to start with something small and easy to comprehend as opposed to starting with something incredibly complicated like Instagram. That makes sense. There are two Supreme Court cases right now uh, that involve big tech. Can you tell us about them? And like, are they really going to up in the entire internet? And what do you think needs to happen with them? It's so interesting to me that people are talking about these two cases like it is the end of the internet, right? Like there's all this drama around them. They mostly center on CDA 230. It's like suing tech companies, isn't it? Yeah, so CDA... 230. It's section 230 of the Communication Decency Act, which was something that was put in place in the very, very beginning of the internet era. It was put into place when our our model for technology was the telephone. Back in the day, we didn't hold somebody like Verizon or AT&T responsible for the content that was, you know, that was delivered over phone lines. Tech companies back in the 90s or whatever, said, okay, well, we don't want to be liable for the content that is delivered, you know, via computer lines. And so that's kind of at the heart of 230. Well, we're in a different era now. We're in an era where, you know, platforms control almost all, you know, speech on the internet. These specific cases are looking at did platforms enable bad stuff. Uh, In one case, it's a question of terrorism. And what they're trying to decide is, okay, do we need some kind of modification to CDA 230, you know, in response to these cases, but overall, do we need to modify 230? Yes, we do. How? I don't know. Because if the Supreme Court says that it does need a modification, do they say that it's unconstitutional as written? And then can the Supreme Court send a law back to Congress? That might be a question for someone else, but it's like, I wonder what the possible outcomes of the case are. If you want to watch tech lawyers absolutely lose their minds, get them into a room and then start talking about CDA 230 reform and like 
their heads will like literally explode and they will get so worked up. And, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to tech lawyer, I'll just kind of get their take on it because it's really great to like hear somebody's rant. We should do that for a separate episode. You know, have you ever talked to Melissa Murray? No. All right. She is a law professor at NYU Law. She has a podcast. She live tweets Supreme Court cases. She mm. live tweets the Supremes and she's completely amazing. Oh my, we need to have her. We're writing it down as we speak. We're rounding third base. We are doing it. This is going to be two episodes because there's no world in hell that we can get this into one. <laughs> I love it. There's just too much stuff. That's what the experience of the book is like, by the way. Like there's just so much packed into it that it's hard to say what it's about in like one sentence. Like if I did have to say, I would say it, the book is about kind of the way that it's necessary to think about human frailty inside algorithmic systems, mm. think about bias of the human world inside the algorithmic world. But it's really about like a ton of things simultaneously. Which we love because I mean, this is such a, I think one of my biggest takeaways from like just getting curious period is how interconnected like our world is and how much our history influences everything like our past informs our present on quite literally everything you know it's devastating fascinating interesting exciting sometimes healing sometimes you know three steps forward eight steps back it's all of it it's like it's just such a big large mixed bag yeah yeah 100 percent. we've had like megan that one movie with like that a robot who kills all the kids because uh, she's that other girl's best friend. I have to say, I loved it. I took an edible. I lived my best life. I thought it was incredible. I <laughs> was so thoroughly. And I, I I mean, I felt bad for that little boy when he got ran over, but I was also like, well, bitch, you shouldn't have fucking made fun of her. Okay. If you would have kept your fucking mouth shut, you wouldn't have gotten taken out by that semi. But one thing that I didn't love and I was kind of scared about, deep fakes. How scared should we be? I'm pretty freaked out by deep fakes. Because they're so believable. They're so believable. I am not a person who's like, oh my God, it's the end of the world because we are going to, you know, only have simulated reality anymore. Like I I don't think it's like some kind of singularity event, but I am concerned for the disappearance of truth online. I'm concerned for people not being able to trust what they see online. I am also concerned for creators. One of the things that happens with AI systems is people start talking about, oh, well, we're going to use this AI in order to replace writers or replace artists or replace, you know, workers of, of whatever stripe. Models. Yeah. It's a bad idea because people need jobs. Because you could do like deep fake movies. Literally, if virtual technology gets good enough, like you could just like not even have actors, not have makeup artists, not have any of it. It could just be like 100% all the way generated from AI and like not even look animated. Like it would look real. Yeah. And I mean, do we like, do we need that? Like, I don't know that we need that. Like, I think that people need jobs. Like, I love creating things. I love writing. I love that writers and actors and makeup artists have jobs. Yeah, I don't want 3D printed fucking chocolates. I want homemade Meredith Broussard fucking chocolates. Keep your 3D printed chocolates somewhere else. I know. I want to make my truffles. I want to send them to my friends. I do not want to be replaced by a computer. So this is kind of going to be like end of game rapid fire. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. 
So let's say we have a friend. Let's say that that friend downloaded TikTok on their phone. Let's say that friend is me. Um, I have TikTok on my phone. I use it when I'm all the time. Like, should I be scared? Do I need to actually get like a different iPhone, put it on that iPhone and then get like one of those like pocket Wi-Fis and only let it attach to that? Like, can the Chinese government literally see everything I do on my phone? Is that bad? Should I stop being so lazy about doing TikTok on my main phone? Because I read that on an article. It's not really rapid fire anymore. Is it bad? Am I okay? Are you shitting your pants or am I shitting my pants? Well, okay. So we should all be shitting our pants about various things, but we do not need to do it about TikTok right now. I will admit that I do often think about like setting up some kind of air gapped, like secure system, but that might just be because, you know, I think about this stuff. I think about it too, but then I'm lazy and I just can't be bothered to do a different phone. And I don't even know how to, I, I don't know how to do that. But wait, back to the question. So TikTok, Congress, wanting to ban. Is this really just like the U.S. being scared of like gay people, communists, like just always having a new thing to be afraid of? Or are we actually afraid of TikTok? I'm not personally afraid of TikTok. I think that there is a lot of U.S.-China rivalry in Washington, I think that this plays out in the tech realm. My read on the let's ban TikTok from government phone situation is that it's about U.S.-China tensions and uh, it's some manifestation of that. Uh, I think that what people can do in general is kind of be more conscious about how algorithms work and also how algorithmic targeting works. Mm. Uh, and how targeted advertising works. And so once you understand more about that... Okay, because these bitches are listening. They're listening. It is not like... Because, no, because Mira, I feel like, wasn't it you that said that they're like... Or maybe it wasn't. I'm not trying to throw fingers in here. But someone had told me that it's like you go to somebody's house or whatever and their IP address was looking for toothpaste. And then your phone connects to their like IP, whatever. So like it, you might get a toothpaste ad for what someone living there was doing. But then the other day, I was like... Somewhere where like there is no fucking world in which they could have been talking or looking at what I was. I can't remember like what I was looking for. It was something really random. It was something about like, it was some shit that had nothing to do with anything. It was like growing grapevines or something. I was like trying to figure out if I could grow something. And I wasn't even anywhere. And then my phone just fucking pulled it up. And I didn't even Google anything. And neither did Mark. Like we literally were talking about it. And then I looked at my phone and it was like the thing that was like on my fucking phone. So I feel like those bitches are listening and they're lying. What do you think? Uh, I I think it would be really convenient if they were listening, but I really don't think that they are. Mm. Uh, that probably was me about the toothpaste because that totally sounds like something I would say because I, I definitely talk about IP addresses. But how come they know what I'm thinking at all times? <laughs> well, we are... Basic and predictable. We kind of are. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was trying to find some nicer way to say it, but like, no, we're pretty predictable. And we are interested in the things that our friends are interested in. Oh, and all we do is talk about gardening. Yeah. So like, if you talk about gardening with your friends, you're like in the geographic proximity of your friends. They can also do location tracking. So like, if you've been to the garden store, your phone is tracking your location. Your location data is being sold. It gets tagged as somebody who's been to a garden store. 
And like, yes, like people go to garden stores, like, yes, we think about things like rain barrels and we think about things like, you know, the fancier little things to like tie up your vines. Like there's not that Mm. many things out there in the world of gardening. Okay, touche. Maybe you did get me to cross back from the conspiracy line. So I appreciate you for that. You're always a good friend for that. I can't believe that I'm saving my hardest hitting journalistic question for like three to the end or like two to the end. But my TikTok algorithm has recently become 80% people fighting and 20% Britney Spears conspiracy theories. Also with like trace allowance of like Idaho murders, Murdoch murders, within even more trace of like beauty, but it's mostly... Fighting Britney Spears murders. I don't know what happened. It's just what it is. I think that one of the ways that we can kind of seize power back from the algorithms uh, in our social feeds is we can use these apps, we can use these social platforms like computer programs as opposed to just, you know, using them as like things we do when we're bored and we just like scroll mindlessly. I lost three hours of my life yesterday to this angry Karen's thing because now the algorithm knows <laughs> that I love wow. seeing racist people like get either physically assaulted or like cussed out. Like, cause I just, I love watching a Karen get her comeuppance. Like it just, it, it's like, it's like reaching a scratch under a cast that you've had for like a year <laughs> and then you can get the hanger down there. And it's like, you just get bathed in this like cold, nice, refreshing water. And then next thing you know, there's another dumb bitch getting fucking her comeuppance. Yeah. And then the hanger like scratches and then like you get gangrene under your cast. No, mine's thriving. I'm I'm not even infected. Like I'm, I mean, my (laughs) husband would disagree because like he was trying to like get me to like come help with dinner and like feed the animals. And I like was lost to space and time, like zoning out. So we do need to wrestle back our humanity from these algorithms. So I appreciate you telling us how to do so. And then I interrupted talking about my loss of life to algorithm. So, but yeah, so we need to do what to enjoy the apps without losing our whole hours to the app. So how do we do that? Yeah, we need to train the apps. We need to consider them as just computer programs that are more under our control as opposed to being like mysterious things that feed us suggestions. So I need to not watch the Karen videos to the end so that they'll stop thinking that I'm obsessed with it. Right. Even though I am. Right. So, I mean, you need to like type in, you know, Dutch poodles and like watch, you know, videos of like poodles who live in Amsterdam. So am I a nightmare and I'm basic? Is that just what it is? I mean, we want to watch what we want to watch, right? I mean, that is one of the reasons that the internet is so great is because like you can find this extremely, extremely specific stuff. Like if you want to watch polar bear attack videos, like they're out there. Yeah, how specific, Meredith. I'm obsessed with your brain. You have the most beautiful brain around. You really (laughs) do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, okay. So if you, for example, like watched videos of like that guy who grows the giant pumpkins, like that would cleanse the timeline. He's all over mine. I love him. Big bear swipe. Actually, do you know it's like fucking crazy? Mark literally got me two of bear swipes seeds. No. I have two of those seeds and we are going to plant them. I am literally planting like bear swipes genetic babies. I know. Oh my God. 
Okay, bear swipe, by the way, listeners, bear swipe is like over a thousand pounds. Like this is a giant pumpkin and is a an amazing thing. And you know, like the fact that I have seen giant pumpkins, total triumph of the algorithms. Yeah, he is like one of my favorite follows. Like he is so interesting. And I've learned I'm actually gonna when I grow pumpkins this year, I'm gonna do that gauze thing. Like where you Ooh. wrap the flowers to swell the ovules and like make the sperm like one the speed the st- the stamen I always call it sperm but stamen like he does this thing with God, whatever we need to get him on the podcast but yeah. you're gonna see me doing some of his stuff yeah you're gonna do like you know assisted reproductive technology like with your giant pumpkins aren't you well I've done manual pollination I've just never done the thing where you put gauze on the outside to make them get like more giant. Like the night that they're about to open when I would normally pollinate them, you put this gauze around it so that it stays closed so that like the ovule like pumpkin thing like gets bigger on the bottom of it or whatever. It's like so interest. Okay, so I have final question. We made it. I don't know if you can believe it. Um, Is there a world in which tech can bring us closer together as humans? I certainly hope there is. I mean, I, I feel like... You know, talking about giant pumpkins brings us closer as humans. I feel like kids who who don't feel like they fit in in their communities, like find friends and mentors and role models online. I feel like tech does make the world more accessible to people with disabilities a lot of the time. Uh, but I feel like tech also has also has drawbacks. You know, it also reproduces inequality. And so I think that our our conversation needs to change. We need to just not have these conversations about, oh my God, bright technological future. And we need to dial it back. We need to be more realistic and say, okay, yeah, bright future, but also let's not get so carried away that we forget all the problems of the past. Uh, and I think we should also uh, celebrate the work of people who are doing really amazing thinking about algorithmic justice issues. Uh, so I mentioned Dr. Joy Bolomini and the Algorithmic Justice League. Uh, other people who I read about in the book are Safia Noble, her book, Algorithms of Oppression, along with Kathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Math Destruction. These were really like the books that kicked off mass public understanding of algorithmic justice issues. Ruha Benjamin's book, Race After Technology, was really inspirational for me. Dr. Benjamin has a new book out called Viral Justice that is just incredible uh, and will like upend your understanding of what can a just world look like in the technological sphere. Mimi Onuha is doing incredible work. Timnit Gebru, Ruman Chowdhury, I mentioned. Lots of amazing thinkers out there. One of the things in the back of the book is kind of a list of resources uh, for, okay, if you didn't get enough, like the 5,000 billion citations in the book, here are other things that, uh, that you might want to read. So I really hope that people will just kind of understand like how how fascinating this is and like how this is a civil rights issue and kind of get activated. And then I lied when I said that that was my last question because I, I do have one more last one. So, it, and I, I can't remember if I asked you in the first two, but when you were like a young baby Meredith, when you were like 16, 17, like deciding on like, you know, what you wanted to do when you grew up, obviously, you know, I, sometimes I think about kids that are that age now and I think like, 
are they like it's just such a intense time this feels like a feels like a confusing time feels like a pivotal time i guess every time feels like a confusing and pivotal time but it just feels like a lot right now mm-hmm. and one thing i think about hairdressing for me is that hairdressing and like that artistry and the community of hairdressers like the salon world that gave me like a north star to keep following and to keep focused on when my world mm-hmm. became unstable and shaky and I was going through like all my personal stuff and like hardships. And I do think that a lot of times that's why it's so good to like love what you do because it can be a stabilizing force, even when other things, you know, are changing and it gives you something to to come back to that you love. So if there's a young person listening to this or even someone who's not young and they have listened to our episodes and they are inspired by this, maybe they feel powerless to stop it. Maybe they feel powerless that they can't be a part of these conversations. But what if someone wants to make a career change? What if someone wants to like really make this part of their like life's work or they have a loved one that wants to make this their life's work? What do they do? Like if someone wants to, is realizing that they want to grow up to become their version of Meredith Broussard, where do they start? What do they major in? Where do they study? Oh, great question. There is now a field to go into. It's called public interest technology. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's making technology in the public interest. So sometimes that means doing things like what Julia Engwin does and uh, interrogating algorithms and finding out how they're racist or sexist or ableist or whatever. Other times it means something like working on government websites, making them stronger so that they don't uh, go down when there's a pandemic and you know millions of people are filing for unemployment simultaneously. Right. So there are lots of ways that you can build technology in the public interest and get involved in the field, uh, either from a building technology perspective or from being involved on the policy side or, you know, getting involved in legal efforts around uh, fighting algorithmic justice. There is something at the university level called PIT-UN, the Public Interest Technology University Network, that Mm. is a really powerful network. So at NYU, uh, I work with something called the NYU Alliance for Public Interest Technology, and we have run career fairs. Uh, We are part of PIT-UN. We do training for students and early and mid-career scholars who are interested in accelerating their efforts around public interest technology. So it's a really vital vibrant field. Uh, and so public interest technology, that's your keyword. That's going to, uh, that's going to get you in touch with the good stuff. Meredith Broussard, thank you. Like, thank you isn't big enough, but like, thank you for being so generous with your time and with your work. And also sidebar, thank you for like making this your work. I think that you are doing like such revolutionary and important, like mind opening work for so many people. And I do feel, um, more comforted in the face of all of the weird stuff that is happening, that at least there are people like you teaching the children, the young people now. So not literally the children, but, you know, the young, like literal academics who are going to be like, you know, major in their own right. Jonathan, thank you so much. It's so great being here with you. Just such an amazing conversation. It means so much. We literally love you so much. We can't take it. But you guys, if you don't understand that you must 
read Meredith's new book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. I don't know what to tell you because even though this was a special two-part episode, we still were giving you Titanic, like scratching the surface of the iceberg. Like that iceberg didn't even go that. Like this is the tip of it, honey. Like there's so much juicy info. Like this is the tip. So like get into the whole book, support Meredith's work. We love you so much, Meredith. And thank you for coming on Getting Curious. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Meredith Broussard. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me and Erica Ghetto. 